Welcome, everybody, to episode 48 of Generation Jihad. I'm Tom Dawson, and I'm joined again, as always, by my colleague, Bill Rojo. Bill? Hello, everyone. We are senior fellows at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, and we've been running FDD's Long War Journal for many years now. Um, of course, this week, we're going to have to address um, Afghanistan again. Of course, you know we've covered Afghanistan for a long time. Uh, it's not something that we are eager to talk about on every every podcast that we do, but this is one where we, we certainly have to. Um, President Biden uh, made a very, um, I would say, poignant speech advocating for his decision to withdraw from Afghanistan after all these years. Um, the speech was, I think, very emotional. I think parts of the speech uh, resonated along those lines. Um, however, I think that in terms of the intellectual arguments underpinning uh, the speech, I think that uh, they came up short quite quite often. I think that President Biden's rationale, um, besides the fact that the U.S., many in the U.S. just want to get out and don't want to be there and don't really understand why we're there and nobody really wants to see any more Americans die in Afghanistan. Beyond that, which I think Bill and I both understand and agree with, of course, beyond that, in terms of reasoning or understanding the war and what's going on, uh, the, the speech sort of fell short, at least from my perspective. Um, Bill, you agree with that? Yeah, I, the the speech was fell far short. I mean, obviously, for reasons we're going to discuss in this, you know, again, it's it's difficult to make the case for staying in Afghanistan. I understand that um, there is a case to be made, but there is no political will. Um, the reality to to um, make this happen just doesn't. You know, it's uh, I, I'm a believer of not advocating for policy that has zero chance of success. Um, so, but, you know, look, he could have done this in a completely different way, but let's get at it. Uh, I don't want to jump the gun, Tom. Well, let's let's talk about it. I mean, I think you hinted right there. I mean, if, you know, obviously you're not going to hear any fire-breathing rhetoric on this podcast about these issues. They're, these issues are complex and there are different opinions about them. And I don't, you know, we're not going to claim to know exactly the right thing to do, but we can inspect the things that we can, we've been covering for years and been talking about for years. Those we can inspect with reason and facts and try and understand them more. And what I would say is, you know, um, you know, some of our opinions on this obviously are contradictory. So, you know, I hold contradictory opinions on Afghanistan, you know, uh, in terms of what what America could or should do. Um, on, on that note, I would say that President Biden made a decision that he wasn't going to be a conditions based withdrawal. That in fact, he thought that the conditions based withdrawal just meant that he was going to the U.S. was just going to be there indefinitely, and he was going to be presented with the same ultimatum or same decision point, I should say, over and over and over again throughout his first term in, in office. And quite frankly, I think that's right. I mean, I think that, you know, basically nobody can say at this point that the, the security situation in Afghanistan is going to turn around anytime soon to the point where the U.S. could be comfortable with leaving without um, without risking the Afghan government losing its grip on power in the places where it still has it. So, I don't. I don't think he was wrong in that regard in terms of how he set up the decision. Do you, Bill? No, I, I agree. I mean, the problem is, is that decision is based on years or two decades of bad decisions, right? And so, you know, when he argues, well, yeah, again, I don't want to jump the gun here on, on topics, but you know, he'll make an argument such as we had a hundred thousand troops in Afghanistan and that didn't make a difference. Well, they weren't used properly. They were withdrawn too early. They, you know, those were 
there uh, it was a timeline based withdrawal. They, you know, years of the military hiding data, telling us we've turned the corner, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, a decision to leave Afghanistan as he's doing is based on again two decades of terrible decisions. So, I you know this is you know as you said it's conflicting. I get it. I get where he's coming from. Um, he doesn't want to be boxed in and, um, you know, you know, two years from a year from now, two years from now, we're in the same place as we are today. The problem that I have with all of this is the alternative or what's the reality actually of leaving is going to create its own problems. And those are problems that his administration is going to have to deal with uh, over the next four years. Um, so he owns this one. It's his decision. He owns it and he should be held accountable for it. Yeah. And I mean, look, if, if there aren't, you know, if, if the people who just all they want is just to get out, you know, if they're right that there aren't any negative security ramifications for the U.S. and its allies, we'll just say even just the U.S., right? Then uh, in 2024, President Biden can own the decision and say, hey, I was right to just get out. And everybody else was overstating the case that this was going to have negative ramifications. However, if it does have negative ramifications that the world sees, um, that we see as Americans, um, then he should be politically held accountable for that as well. I mean, that's basically what we've always advocated is accountability and competition on these issues. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's that's the point. I mean, I think the other thing is, is that when you when you look at one of the options, and I wrote something about this a couple of weeks ago, one of the options that was presented to President Biden was, well, we need to stay a little bit longer in order to try to um, uh, negotiate this political settlement between the Taliban and the Afghan government. And that was the stated that was a stated goal of staying longer by in that option by both the State Department and Defense Department. And what I think people perhaps are not being realistic about is that that's not a viable option. There's no real evidence of a quote unquote peace process whatsoever. This has always been a fiction that has been uh, stood up in place of reality. And the idea that, um, the idea that you know the U.S. could stay just six months or a year longer, and magically the Taliban is going to change its stripes after all these years and recognize the Kabul government as an entity it needs to really bargain with and come to a political settlement with. There's just no evidence for that. I mean, I don't know what that's based on. So if I were sitting in his shoes and somebody came to me and said, "Hey, we just need to stay another six months, eight months, twelve months, whatever, uh, in order to negotiate a political settlement," I'd say, "What? What are you talking about? That's not. That's not. You know." And the problem is, in terms of bad decisions. That's what the Defense Department and State Department have been pitching, right? So, you know, what? You're going to have Americans in Afghanistan to pursue this fantasy? I mean, it just doesn't make any sense, right? Yeah, Tom. And, um, you know, again, it's a, it's bad decision upon bad decision. And, you know, we fortunately we weren't doing this podcast, but I believe it was in 2018 or 2019 when Resolute Support stopped releasing data district level data on what the Taliban controlled and contested with the Afghan government controlled, um, you know, and this, the, the reasoning, the rationale given that by the U S military, because if we were had this podcast, we would have been a lively discussion and, um, would have been a fun one, but the, the decision given for or the reasoning given for that was, well, you know, the military situation in Afghanistan doesn't matter anymore. Now it's the political situation. It's negotiations with the Taliban. That's what we're going to judge success and yeah, failure. All delusional. Right. Yeah, exactly. And so, and, and now you, right. That was insane then. 
Um, and it's it's crazy now because the decision the, or they're, they're trying to predicate a decision on staying in Afghanistan based on, again, negotiations with the Taliban that were always destined to fail. We know you and I know that. And anyone with half a brain who studies Afghanistan would realize that as well, because the Taliban don't want to give up power. So, yeah, president, the, the options given to President Biden were horrible. If It seems that no one has ever given this option over the last decade of, hey, maybe we need to keep a minimal force here to prop up the Afghan government, to keep them in the fight, to keep the Taliban from gaining control of major cities, to um, to prevent, you know, to conduct counterterrorism raids against Taliban and al-Qaeda. And you remember, you can't de-link the two, the Taliban and al-Qaeda. Yeah, I, I was going to say keep Taliban and al-Qaeda from capturing cities. because Yes, that's exactly. Of, that's part of what people are underestimating here is al-Qaeda's role in insurgency, but be that many, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you No, no, that's okay. No, you're absolutely right, Tom. And that's the only way you'll see me argue for a, a, a continued mission in Afghanistan. That, And that's fraught with problems. And yes, it's it's it, it requires a long commitment, but, you know, I'm, you know, having studied this for almost two decades, we, I think we all know what Afghanistan is going to look like post-U.S. withdrawal. I think we know what it's going to look like in six months, what it's going to look like within a year, what it's going to look like in three years. It's not going to look very good. The Taliban is control, going to control significant areas of Afghanistan, and so goes the Taliban, so goes al-Qaeda. That is something we have to recognize. Um, this is the real thing that I did find offensive about uh, uh, Biden and Blinken, uh, Anthony, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. They're telling us, you know, we don't think Al Qaeda is a threat, and it's not a big deal, and you know we'll we'll keep an eye on them. And um, but how are we going to do that? And and I, I realize that's a uh, later down the line in this discussion. I won't jump the gun there, but uh, that's yeah, all right. You're, you already did. It's okay. uh, yeah, no, it, <laughs> just go with it. No, go with it. It's fine. It's, you know? They're 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 trying to tell us that leaving Afghanistan, it's not a, a national security threat. We got bigger fish to fry. But the reality is, is this is going to be a problem. I, I, if there was a, uh, a betting market for this, Tom, I'd put a good chunk of money on that you're going to see um, renewed al-Qaeda, you know, increased al-Qaeda presence there. You're going to see, Al you know, aside from the propaganda victory of this. In yeah, many, I think it could be ways. more overt is what I would say. I think al-Qaeda is probably you've got a whole, exactly. propaganda, whole propaganda stack that they've been just dying to release, showing their involvement in different operations through the years and what they're doing, you know. Um, they're, and they're going to be more more over if the U.S. truly does get totally out and doesn't, you know, and the over the horizon model, which we're going to discuss, proves to be ineffectual. Al Qaeda is going to be very happy to broadcast what it's been doing this whole time and what yeah, it's doing it's, right now. It's you know, and and it's what happens in Afghanistan as we've learned over the last several decades doesn't stay in Afghanistan. All of Al Qaeda's networks. That's another one of my lines. Just got, just Sorry about that. <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> if you want that to happen, we should write a script. Yeah, um, <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, it's you know Biden tells us in the speech Al Qaeda is stronger in Africa and it's stronger in Syria and it's stronger here and there, and that's true. But that doesn't make Afghanistan any less of a threat. Well, str stronger in relation to where they were years ago in those yes. different areas. I mean, every every one of those stories is a little bit different, actually. I mean, I, I wrote something. I mean, he talked about al-Nusra in Syria. And, of course, there hasn't been right. an al-Nusra in Syria since mid-2016. It's a whole convoluted story there, which we're not going to relitigate right now or reexamine right now. Um, but the point is, yeah, they've gained strength in some areas around the globe compared to 10 years ago or compared to 20 years ago. Sure. But that doesn't mean that that Afghanistan is a non-issue now, because you know also those areas that he outlined, none of them are next to a jihadi-infested uh, nuclear-armed state. 
And of course, Afghanistan is, you know, so this is a, you know, this is a, this is a situation fraught with, you know, problems here. I mean, you could see that this is going to spill over and, and could have a chain effect in various different ways in the near future. Yeah. I mean, in, in Pakistan, just 10 years, 10, 11 years ago, you had uh, Al Qaeda allied and Taliban allied. Obviously, the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan swears allegiance to the Taliban's emir. It's closely allied with Al Qaeda, as we saw in Osama bin Laden's documents. Al Qaeda is basically writing the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan's charter. And they took over large sections of northwestern Pakistan and were launching military attacks on general headquarters in Rawalpindi, in the heart of of um, of Pakistan, and attacks in Lahore and Islamabad and uh, uh, you know all all throughout the country and controlled large areas of the country. Do we think that once the Taliban's emboldened, that once Al Qaeda is emboldened by its successes in Afghanistan, that they won't try, make another go at uh, taking a shot at Pakistan? Um, you know. <laughs> A lot of problems here that I think are just they're just not being thought through. They're just they're just saying we want out of really a, a Biden's uh, oh Biden. Wow, that's a good one. Oh, um, Biden's um, uh, policy is let's just get out of Afghanistan and pretend this won't have second and third order effects. It will. Yeah, look, I the way I looked at his speech was basically if he said, look, we got a lot of other issues going on, true, from the pandemic to um, you know, so-called great power competition with China and threats from Russia and other entities and cyber threats, which he, he mentioned all these. He said, we got all these different issues we have to worry about today. and We can't worry about Afghanistan as much as we did in the past. And therefore, you know, I don't want to deal with this and we're out. I can sympathize with a lot of that argumentation. Um, you know, it's just um, it doesn't mean I necessarily agree with it, but at least that would be a straightforward case and just says, you know, that's it. And we honor the sacrifice of the Americans who fought and died there. And and the Afghans who are fighting and dying there, which is we're going to get to in a second. Um, but, you know, it just that he he went on to provide all of these attempt to provide all these intellectual justifications for describing the terror threat. And that's where I thought the speech really fell short. Like, I think that what they're underestimating. Well, I think the entire I think most of the counterterrorism community is underestimated for years is the degree to which the resurrection, the resurrection of the Islamic Emirate Afghanistan would be a win for Al Qaeda. You know, one of the great liabilities for Al Qaeda, from Al Qaeda's perspective of 9-11 was that it led to the loss of the only viable Islamic emirate in the world at the time. The only emirate that was seen to be religiously justified in bin Laden's and Zawahiri's own eyes in the Taliban's Islamic Emirate in Afghanistan. If they're able to resurrect that in the coming months and years, along with the Taliban, and that alliance remains unbroken, that's going to be a boon for their cause, which will have, you know, second and third order effects uh, here going forward. I mean... You know, I, I'm struck. What, I, what I'm struck by in all this um, is just, and, and this is part of part of why I'm so conflicted on looking at a situation like this. If you think about it from the American soldiers' perspective, for example, or the families who are deploying American soldiers to Afghanistan, you know, their leaders don't know what they're doing, right? I mean, that's part of what Long War Journal has been documenting for years. You know, people, you know, we we've, we've had numerous run-ins with you know public affairs officers and. And you know, State Department types and other military types and administration officials and just said, you know, look, let's try and be realistic about what's going on here and get it right. And the truth is they, they haven't been able to get it right. And they're they're not going to get it right. You know, um, and so if you look at it from the perspective of an American soldier, do I want to deploy American soldiers to a, a war that's now unpopular, that there's that nobody wants to lead and nobody is, is proven capable of leading? I mean, you know, no, I mean, obviously not. 
On the other hand, when I look at what's happening in Afghanistan, I think that that lack of leadership doesn't shouldn't change our diagnosis of what's going on and our description and our analysis of jihadism and terrorism and 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 the picture that's going to unfold here in the coming months. Um, you know, the, the fact of the matter is that Long War Journal exists for several reasons, one of which was to document al-Qaeda's presence in places where people were telling us it didn't exist. And Afghanistan is one of those places where our leaders have told us for years that it was decimated and on the run, a shadow of its former self. The new talking point now is no longer decimated, which I'm, I appreciate because I don't want to hear that word anymore. It's now degraded. Okay, that's what they're going with, you know, to just change change their, their adjective. But but the point is, is that you know the, the lack of leadership on these issues doesn't change those facts, right, that they're still there and they're still looking to proclaim victory in all this. And um, the bottom line is that the Afghan forces, and this is where I have a, another problem with this, is that the Afghan forces are on the front lines of that. You know, I looked at the New York Times data recently. They have a great um, uh, service they provide to the public called the Afghan Casualty Report, uh, War Casualty Report. I read this regularly because it gives you a good sense of, you know, you know what's happening in Afghanistan. And I think, you know, somewhere around 4,000, I would say likely more than 4,000, but somewhere around 4,000 Afghan security personnel have been killed since the U.S. signed its withdrawal deal with the Taliban. You know, they are suffering large number of casualties. And I would say that's a minimum. There's probably, it's probably a lot more than that. But, and that doesn't include the wounded. But the bottom line is this is a government that America stood up along with its allies after 9-11. And I do, you do get the sense now, and we've had this sense for a long time, since 2018 really, that the U.S. is throwing this government and its security forces under the bus to a large degree as the U.S. leaves. And I do have a problem with that. Yeah, I, I concur, Tom. The, the sacrifice of the Afghan forces, and look, I, I'll be the first to criticize their, you know, the, but they do fight. Um, do they fight well? Are they they well motivated? You know, yes, there's issues there. There's certainly legitimate criticisms of the Afghan security forces, but one of them isn't um, uh, uh, is that they're a, a, an illegitimate criticism is that they're not um, fighting and dying. They are doing that. They may not be doing it well. They may have, you know, there's a lot of, lot, again, plenty of issues, logistics and, um, you know, go soldiers. We can go down the list. But, you know, when, and th that number is probably far likely, uh, far more, because keep in mind, that's that number's been declassified or been classified for several years. The, right, because, the, the more accurate assessment by DOD and the Afghan government is, 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 again, one of the ways in which none of this makes any sense DOD has classified the actual number of ANDSF casualties for years. Um, I don't know why. Uh, obviously, the, the, the answer to that is because yeah. they, they don't want to show the bad the bad side of it. The, the it because it, it shows you know it shows two sides. It shows the a right. that it making a sacrifice, but b right. that they're taking in order to casualties. I just wanted to go back real quick to decimated, degraded. I think we need a couple of D words. We need to think think in advance on this. So. Um, if you have any, I, I was thinking like maybe we could call them desiccated or demoralized. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, we just we're going to need some more. We're going to need some more D words, Tom, for for Al Qaeda's presence in Afghanistan. Yeah, um, I yeah. mean, it's just at least at least I don't have to. At least I didn't hear the decimated word. You know, we hear. Yeah, it's, I, it's an old. Yeah, it's an old talking point that was uh, put around for years. But anyway, so. Look, I mean, there are a couple things. I mean, uh, President Biden said that basically the U.S. should have gotten out after the Bin Laden raid. Um, you and I both, you know, thought, and basically just declared victory. And of course, that ignores all the other senior al-Qaeda operatives who were operating in Afghanistan and Pakistan at the time that that uh, bin Laden was killed. It assumes that, bin, that I mean, the assumption is that the death of bin Laden was the death of al-Qaeda and the terrorist threat. That's the assumption that he's making in saying that. 
Now, looking back at the history since 2011, you know, we can't say that, um, you know, the situation has improved on the ground to where the U.S. can declare victory and say there's a stable Afghan government. True, but it can say it has neutralized a number of terrorist threats in the region since then. So he's basically assuming that all away, which I think is a mistake, um, and assuming that, that that didn't really matter. But the other thing that you and I noticed right away, Bill, or thought of right away is, well, wait a minute, you know, the raid on bin Laden took place because the U.S. did have a forward military presence in Afghanistan where they could deploy helicopters into our duplicitous ally, our punitive ally in Pakistan, uh, you know, into Abbottabad. That raid doesn't happen if the U.S. doesn't have a footprint in Afghanistan, really. Not at least not that that type of raid anyway. Yeah, right. I mean, and look at and, and not just bin Laden, the scores of uh, Al Qaeda leaders, uh, the Atiyah. Um, we can go on and on on the number of top-notch al-Qaeda military, political, uh, religious leaders that have been killed in both Afghanistan and Pakistan. And that didn't happen um, with the U.S. over the horizon. I mean, you boots on the ground matter in this, in, in this point. You know, I, I just found his – the criticism – of staying in Afghanistan after May 2011, I mean, he directly indicting the um, President Obama because keep in mind that, you know, President Obama was in office for all, about five, what, five and a half years? After, about five and a half years. Yeah. He, yeah President Biden says that we stayed there for a decade after bin Laden was killed. Think about that, he said for emphasis. Well, yeah, I did think about it. And you're basically saying that the guy you worked with, President Obama, was wrong for five and a half years to stay yeah, there. I mean, right. okay. I mean, you can make that argument. You can go ahead and say that. But it is curious that you would throw his own, you know, somebody obviously is friends with and respects and is his political partner. It's, it's, it is it's curious that he would throw him under the bus that way. Yeah. And, and many of the people on Biden's own team who were involved in, in that decision-making uh, process and executing the policy as well. So I, I, I found that to be extremely curious. But, you know, but more importantly, the, the number of senior al-Qaeda al and other allied jihadist leaders that we've killed in the both before and after bin Laden's death, it's significant. I've got a page somewhere at the, at the, at the Long War Journal that um, tallies this, and I think I stopped updating it in 2019 because it's 2019. But these, are, they're, they're still happening. We're still, you know, uh, we or the Afghan security forces, with our help but behind the scenes, are still conducting these raids and still killing senior Al Qaeda leaders. Do we think those senior leaders, Al Qaeda leaders, are just going to stop? Um, uh, they're just not going to be there anymore because we're ending our involvement in this so-called endless war. They're not going to be there after the U.S. withdrawals. No, it's going to happen is they're going to increase their presence because it's going to become safer to operate there. Yeah. And I think going forward, part of what this all, what's going to happen too, is we're going to learn that there is this next generation of Al Qaeda has been groomed to take over. Um, there are going to be people that aren't being talked about right now in the counterterrorism community who are going to pop and sort of do their aha moment on camera, um, you know, or they're going to reveal themselves in other ways. You're going to see that with other groups too. You know, ISIS is in the region, still has an arm in the region. Um, the Pakistani Taliban, which is really intertwined with Al Qaeda. Um, I was just going through the history of that organization again just recently, and it's just so much data and evidence on that regard. But they've, of course, been reconstituted with Al Qaeda's help over the last couple of years. Um, there are all sorts of other, you know, this this alphabet soup of jihadi acronyms that we deal with of groups coming out of Pakistan. They're also in Afghanistan. There's a whole there's a whole thick array of of characters there that are probably not factoring in, not being factored into how we 
how the U.S. thinks about this stuff. Now, look, I mean, critics would say, well, it's going to be an endless supply of these guys. You can kill them forever and play whack-a-mole forever. And that's that's probably true. But that doesn't mean that they're not going to be a problem going forward and that you're not going to have to defend yourself against them. I mean, there, there's going to be issues going forward here with what these guys do. Um, they're going to not only help the Taliban take back at least parts of Afghanistan, probably large parts of Afghanistan. Um, we'll see how fast that goes. Um, but then also exporting terrorism through Pakistan, which is sort of the Frankenstein effect that we've talked about, where pa- the Pakistani state, you know, helped build this jihadi, you know, menace. And, you know, there's there's a real risk that that Frankenstein effect will happen in Pakistan, where the, the, the monster comes back to bite the establishment. Uh, that's certainly possible. But also then throughout the entire Indian subcontinent, I mean, India's got to be worried now about an increased terror threat, and it's an ally with the U.S., it's an ally that the U.S. has um, against China, by the way. So this has implications for the so-called great power rivalry, you know, Kashmir, you know, um, it's just all just all sorts of ramifications for this. Now, now that means that, you know, one of the things you hear, too, one of the talking points is, well, there's no, you know, what's your theory of victory for Afghanistan? You and I have been very clear about this. There's no chance of an actual outright victory anytime soon. Yeah, short of launching war on Pakistan. And then we know that's not happening. And, right. You know, and, and advocate and even, that. Right. Yeah, right, right. And I mean, there's no, there is the point, the point has been for the U.S. for really the last decade has been to try to prevent the Taliban and Al-Qaeda from achieving a victory. That's a different scenario. It's basically, you know, and this is where the game is tilted, the war game is tilted toward the insurgents because all they have to do is survive and keep fighting and they don't, they can you know, live to fight another day, then that they're eventually going to run out the clock on, you know, on the other side. And that's basically what they've done here. Um, so I don't know. I mean, going forward, I think, you know, look, this is still going to be an issue to cover going forward. You know, one of the things I've seen somebody, some of the folks in Pakistan and some of the Taliban apologists say is that, you know, people like us just need the war to keep going, you know, to justify <laughs> our existence or whatever. I mean, first of all, my response to that is go to hell. But second, my second response to that is, um, yeah, no, you idiots. Uh, actually, it's the uh, the opposite is true. The U.S. withdrawing is going to create more work for what we do than uh, a lot more work for what, for what we do than we had already, unfortunately. And I wish that wasn't the case. I mean, there's a lot of other things I like to do in my life that cover this stuff. But, um, you know, Tom, it's, it's going to be bad, you know. Tom, I, I, I say this. I wish they did. Um, are, I wish a U.S., a Western or global victory against jihadism would put me out of a job. I'd gladly figure out another career. Um, the reality is it's not going to happen. I heard the same arguments after the surge in Iraq. What are you going to do now? Um, I heard the same argument after U.S. withdrawal from Iraq. What are you going to do now? Well, that worked out real well. The, the answer is, what are we going to do now? We're going to document decline. We're going to point out how the Taliban's going to – I mean, this is just in Afghanistan. There's again, there's We cover all the for, theaters. Yeah, I mean, yeah, our, our coverage was never beholden just to Right. It's never beholden to yeah. one area anyway. I mean, you know, the fa- we, I've put a lot of emphasis on Pakistan over the last – or I'm sorry, Afghanistan over the last several years because – We've seen this coming. You know, Tom and I could have wrote this script uh, five, six years ago, Tom. Seven years ago. We, we, we've seen yeah, all I mean, of this coming. We, we, we gamed it out. The final gaming out, you and I had a series of conversations. We could have written the script several years ago. But 2018, if you go back, you can search on some of the stuff that I wrote and that we talked about at the time. I wrote a piece called The War in Afghanistan is Over. We Lost. Because if you game it out with the, the lack of political will inside the U.S., how this revisionism about the Taliban and apology about the Taliban had taken hold in decision makers' minds, um, how the U.S. government um, was locking itself into this phony peace process with the Taliban, which doesn't really exist. It's just all nonsense. When you gamed and you saw that the military was saying there is no military solution for Afghanistan, yeah, well, tell that to the Taliban and al-Qaeda and other jihadis. 
Uh, they have a military solution for sure. Um, you know, so when you when you game this all out, you see that basically the American establishment had committed itself to a path that had no chance of success, zero chance of success. Not that every other path was, you know, that much greater, but this was this was a guaranteed loser, the path that was chosen by 2018. Um, yeah, it was over. I mean, at least for now, you know, I mean, and ultimately, whether it was President Trump or the next Democrat to take office, which turned out to be President Biden, I think that we would have seen this a version of this speech from whoever was in office, basically. I don't think I don't think that this is a, a decision that there was any uh, leader in either, there was no leader in either one of the parties that basically would have stayed past, you know, uh, would have committed to staying past when when the U.S. is. So um, I think that's I think that's the reality of the situation. Um, and we've been trying to deal with the reality as messy and as awful as it is this whole time, which I think a lot of the a lot of stuff you've seen from people is not really realistic, you know. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, Tom. Realism has not entered this argument for. Well, yeah, now uh, there's also the the realism school of foreign policy, yeah. which you and I agree is not very realistic. No, and then there's, no. and then there's reality. What I would say is real realism. Reality has reality has it in this conversation. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. But, and it, it's it, it's just depressing. I mean, what you know, what I think what bothers you and I is look. If you just wanted to throw in the towel, there was a far far better way to do this. Um, don't cut a terrible deal with the Taliban. Um, figure out a way to give the Afghan security forces and Afghan government the the best uh, tools that it needs to to defend itself against a, a, a Taliban onslaught, which is coming. Um, don't hand them a victory by declaring 9-11, the 20th anniversary of 9-11 is your withdrawal date. I mean, how, it's like clueless, it, how clueless was that? I mean, that's just that's just <laughs> that's probably the most clueless part of all this is that it, it shows just how much 9-11 has become basically – like I don't, I, people understand the that a great tragedy, a, a horrible terrorist attack occurred, and Americans suffered a great loss on that day. But it just showed by picking nine eleven as the end date for the conflict that they had zero understanding of what it means to the jihadis. Yeah, they had zero understanding of what it means to Taliban and Al Qaeda to do that. I mean, you know, the Taliban, by the way, has not apologized once for nine eleven. They rub our noses in it. The last thing they've said publicly about nine eleven was that it was America's fault. Yeah, we did that video. It. Then we deserved it in that video you covered. You know, uh, there's there's no evidence whatsoever that the Taliban has ever taken any responsibility for harboring bin Laden and his not so merry men who planned 9-11 from Afghanistan, contrary to what some of the Taliban apologists and other anti-war Africans claim. That's clearly where what happened. Um, you know, th there's never been any accountability for any of that, you know. And so then to pick 9-11 as your end date to say we're going to be out by 9-11 as if that's a great accomplishment when now the jihadis get to celebrate not only the fact that they brought the war to uh, to America on 9/11 but that America ran away with a tail between its legs by 9/11 20 years later i mean that's just just totally tone deaf you know i mean they couldn't have written this any better the taliban and al qaeda couldn't have written it any better i i just who is looking at that i mean it's such a it's, it's an insult to the victims of 9/11 it's an insult to the americans who fought and died in iraq and afghanistan and somalia and uh, everywhere where there's been a casualty fighting these jihadists since the the wars began and yeah i it's it's incomprehensible like but there's there's ways to do this where i may have disagreed but at least it wouldn't have been impalpable like of all the things you know that we're talking about here, Tom and I are talking about, again, we came to, we, we've reconciled with this long ago, um, that we've lost in Afghanistan and that we're leaving. We knew this was coming, 
But, you know, of all the things that upset me about this, that, that shock me, and I guess I really shouldn't say shock because nothing shocks me when it comes to these wars any longer. Um, it was that. It was that decision to just, you know, the, the, it was the final nail in the coffin that we drove ourselves, that the Biden administration drove in, in, into the U.S. public by, by declaring nine, uh, September 11th, 2021 as the last day that there be American troops in, in Afghanistan. Well, yeah, I mean, the other thing that upset us too, or I don't want to say upset, but logically I was critical of, and I guess maybe emotionally upset me too, but I don't know. I think it's more logical problems with it than anything else. Um, it's just, you could see that you could see this delusion about the Taliban has set in and this, this putting pressure on the Afghan government and Ashraf Ghani, yeah, for all their problems. And they've got plenty and we don't carry water for anybody if you listen to us. So, um, you know, no, we, we're not saying that Ashraf Ghani is the greatest leader ever. Clearly not. And we're not saying the Afghan government doesn't have any problems. It clearly has significant problems. Um, but the idea that the State Department and that these officials would pressure the Afghan government as the U.S. leaves, while meanwhile putting no pressure on the Taliban at all, uh, you know, diplomatically or in terms of uh, calling them out for all their egregious horror, the horror show that is ongoing in Afghanistan, which is the Taliban's responsibility. I mean, that's offensive. You know, you have these Afghan forces fighting and dying as the U.S. withdraws. And there's this idea that, you know, somehow, and I, you can see this in some of the commentators, some of the so-called experts are commenting on it. You know, one of these imbeciles who I think I'm going to cover in a future podcast was talking about how, you know, how disappointing the Afghan government was. That was his message on the way out, you know, you know, oh, how awful the Afghan government is. Oh, well, uh, excuse me. You know, what, what was that about the Taliban? You know, what is the Taliban doing? They're the ones that kept the war going. You know, yeah, uh, the Afghan government has been begging for a ceasefire. They've been begging for the, the U.S. The U.S. To just recognize them yeah. and, and bring them to the table. They, they, you know, the U.S. and the Afghan government begging for a yeah. ceasefire for years now, yeah, uh, and haven't been able to get one. And you know, begging over and over again for a ceasefire, and the Taliban wouldn't grant one. And somehow, this is the Afghan government's fault. I mean, it's just all, it's all ludicrous. It's all theory of the theory of the absurd. You know, so you could withdraw, you could have withdrawn from Afghanistan, but this is this is the point I think a lot of people are missing. Right, look. For history books, we're going to have to write a history of this, first of all. Second of all, for the history books, I want to say this. We were entirely right about negotiating with the Taliban. It was rooted in Taliban apology and Afghan, Afghan war revisionism. It was a fool's errand from the beginning. Um, but it locked America into this path where you could see that basically the U.S. was at a minimum drawing moral equivalency between the Afghan government and the Taliban. That's just ludicrous, you know? That's just nonsense, you know? And don't tell me that isn't what it, it did, because it did. You know, we've, I've testified alongside people who are advocates for this process, so-called process, that they were making those arguments. They were drawing equivalency. I heard them say it. I'm, gonna, I'm coming for you eventually in the history books, you know? Um, I've seen, you'd see it in articles that are written. You can see it in commentaries written. We're going to document all this in the coming years because yeah, the mil U S military didn't exactly use military leadership failed in a lot of ways, but you, you folks didn't come up with an alternative that was any better. In fact, you came up with an alternative that was worse because the U S could have just left without empowering and legitimizing the Taliban and whitewashing the Taliban. These people came up with a path that said, not only is the U.S. leaving, but it's leaving while whitewashing the Taliban and, 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 and in effect apologizing for the Taliban. I mean, that's ridiculous. Yeah, while smearing our ally on the way out the door and delegitimizing them. Yeah, and, and so, Tom, just to be clear, those things, I, I guess I've, I've come to, uh, I came to grip with the fact that we were throwing the Afghan government under the bus and, and whatnot uh, and the Afghan people. I came to grips with that uh, probably a year ago as well. And oh, no, it, I, it is I knew still, it was still happening. upsetting. I, it's I just that it the 9-11 yeah. withdrawal day was, right, the, 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 that date, that was something, even I, I don't think I would have predicted that they would have actually came out and given us that date. So that just was like, finally, like, it was like the final FU in the entire process. That one I didn't see coming. 
So that's why it blindsided me. The rest, yeah, I mean, the yeah. rest, uh, yeah, nothing. You know, nothing I, I knew we well, knew that that was. I knew it was happening. Of course, I mean that's what I predicted with these negotiations with the Taliban that it was going to base it lead to this perverse outcome where the U.S. was going to be diplomatically allied with the Taliban against its own ally in, in the Afghan government. It's totally ludicrous, but that's exactly what happened. Um, you know, um, but it, but to me, you know, I, I the degree to which you see even new personnel come in and endorse these ideas and endorse this route without any thought, including. Secretary Blinken, who I, I mean, I watched his nomination hearings, and he seemed like a reasonable fellow to me. And there were certain things I agreed with that he said. But then this this is completely unreasonable. You know, I mean, it, it, there's no reason to do what they're doing. You know, it just doesn't make any sense. Um, so um, you could you could you could have just left without doing all that, and they didn't. You know, and, and so now you have the, the Taliban rejecting. You know, this this phone. This it was going to be a phony peace conference in Turkey anyway, right? But the Taliban won't even attend the phony peace conference in Turkey. You know, why should um, they? Why no, would I mean, they? Yeah, they're strut their stuff. You know, so <coughs> um, excuse me, um, but. You know, but that that leads to another point on all this, which is, you know, this is how the Western perceptions of this war have been so skewed for so long. Look at all the scrutiny in the media and the press on Ashraf Ghani, the Afghan president. And then look at the, comparatively speaking, how little scrutiny, really no scrutiny is put on Abutullah Akhanzada, the Taliban emir. You know, he doesn't have to show up, show his face. He doesn't show up to any interviews. He doesn't show up to any conferences. He doesn't meet with anybody. He just is a non-entity in terms of this whole political process other than somebody behind the scenes who is, you know, effectively, we think, based on what we've seen publicly, endorsed this deal, this withdrawal deal with the U.S. But other than that, there's really no indication he plays a public role in any of this. And there's no scrutiny paid to him. And that shows you just how warped this whole thing has become. And then moreover, you have um, Sir Judin Haqqani, his right-hand man, the deputy emir of the Islamic era of Afghanistan, the warlord. Um, you know, he writes, a, 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 there's an op-ed published in his name, I should say, in the New York Times uh, last year, I think it was, that was clearly just disinformation. It was nonsense. It was either last year or the year before. I forget now. It's all blends together at some point. Um, it's just disinformation. But there's no real scrutiny put on him, even though he's still a U.S. designated terrorist, a, a, a global designated terrorist. Still no scrutiny put on him throughout this whole process. You know, yet Ashraf Ghani has to answer everybody's questions and, you know, this and that. It just doesn't make any sense. I mean, it's not, that's not an apology for Ghani. It's just to saying that, boy, our perceptions warp that he is at the center of scrutiny, whereas the guys who have actually kept the war going and who are fighting for victory and are allied with al-Qaeda, those guys don't have to answer for any scrutiny at all. Yeah, it's, it's, it's part of this per perverse Taliban apology. Part of this is due to the fact that I think U.S. officials have been dumping on the Afghan government for, I, I mean, think about this, Tom. The U.S. signs an agreement with the Taliban and for that withdrawal agreement in Doha on February 29, 2020. And one of the things in there is that the Afghan government has to release 5,000 prisoners. The Afghan government isn't a party yep, to this agreement. They were we'll intentionally locked out. And yet the Afghan government acquiesced and knowingly put release those prisoners knowing that a percentage of them were going to return to the battlefield. And yet we dump on them and there's zero criticism of the Taliban um, for, for returning them to the battlefield. And now the Taliban are saying we want our additional 7,000 if the U.S. is going to stay longer and take us off the sanctions list and whatever. I don't know. If, I doubt any of them. The Afghan government would be crazy to release them, and I doubt they will. But they have gone, you know, for all the Afghan government flaws, and they are numerous, folks, and we can, you know, and they're well documented as well. They're the ally that we have. And yet, you know, but the press can't access Mullah Habitullah Akhanzada, the emir of the Taliban, 
He's not someone they could access, so they can't get him a quote. They can't see, you know, they can't see him. They can't interview him. Um, then you have the Taliban apologia part. So it all sort of plays into this, as you say, perverse, um, reflexive criticism of the Afghan government while the Taliban gets a complete pass. It's the one, the Afghan military is in defensive mode in Afghanistan, has been for some time. The Taliban has remained on the offensive. And there is really, you know, you see press reporting about the Taliban being on the offensive, but you don't get any criticism of it. Only in the, in, in terms of this bizarre reduction in violence that isn't even part of this agreement. So, yeah, it's, 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 to say it's perverse, I even think that's just a too kind of a word. There must be, I guess you need to use expletives, uh, in order to, to, to really get to the core of the problem of the how the press and how the commentators and political officials have, have let the Taliban off the hook for its role in, in continuing this fighting and able to actually negotiate peace. But as we know, the Taliban never was going to negotiate peace because its goal is the reestablishment of the Islamic Emirate. Yeah, I mean, a few other things to say about President Biden's speech. I mean, one, you know, he says that uh, the war in Afghanistan was never meant to be a multi-generational conflict. I think that's true from the Americans' perspective. Um, yeah, we we never really anticipated this being a multi-generational conflict in Afghanistan. But it's not true from the jihadis' perspective, and that's the fundamental problem here, right? I mean, you know, I I just mentioned Siraj Haqqani, Sirajuddin Haqqani, and I'm struck by, you know, this is, again, just shows you the ignorance within American circles of who who the U.S. has even been fighting all these years. I'm struck by the fact that Jalaluddin Haqqani, his father, who, of course, founded the so-called Haqqani Network, which was integrated with the Taliban very early on in the 1990s, contrary to some misinformation, um, the, you know, Jalaluddin Haqqani was one of the key so-called Mujahideen commanders who declared victory over the Soviets. He originally had help from the CIA, but then, of course, was also in bed with Osama bin Laden. And he and his men really incubated the first generation of al-Qaeda. And so Jalaluddin Haqqani is celebrated by the Taliban to this day and by jihadis to this day as this victorious commander of the Soviets. Well, lo and behold, now his son, Sir Juden, is now, now is able to declare victory over the Americans and will take credit for that. And by the way, this is a guy who all the available evidence says he's, he's in bed with al-Qaeda. All the available evidence says that Siraj Khan, including stuff in the Bin Laden files, including designations and the material that went behind the designations, including all sorts of granular information that we have about this stuff. I mean, Jalaluddin, his father, helped Osama Bin Laden escape Tora Bora in 2001. There's, there's firsthand eyewitness accounts from al-Qaeda on that. Um, and the idea that, you know, Jalaluddin Akani or Siraj Akani, you know, this father and son duo now basically get to, you know, his father, the father declared victory of the Soviets and the son gets to declare victory of the Americans. I do think that, that sort of thing, if Siraj lives, keeps keeps going and is and still the commander and is still in charge and nobody takes him out, which it doesn't look like he's going to be. I think that has ramifications. So, yeah, it's not it shouldn't have been a multi-generational conflict from the American perspective. But from the jihadist perspective, it is multi-generational. That's the way they look at it. And they are going to keep fighting and it has ramifications. Yeah, you know, I agree with you. I mean, we probably didn't expect this to be a multi-generational conflict. But I do recall President Bush saying that it was going to be a long war and a lot of this war is going to be fought in the shadows. And, you know, that 
Um, so I, you know, look, we named it the Long War Journal because I believe that was a term used by Don Rumsfeld, if uh, if I correct, or at least it's attributed to him or someone within the Bush administration. Yeah, what, so, what, I, what I would mean, I, I agree with you. What I'm saying is, like, when people went, I think Americans, generally speaking, went to war in October 2001. Okay, yes, I got you, Tom. I, got I don't you. think anybody could have thought when they sent when they sent their fathers and sons off to war in October 2001 that we'd be still talking about this. Not yeah, that their grandsons and would be yeah, sons and, yeah, and whatever. Sure. I mean, I don't think anybody would have been thinking that a that a kid born, a kid born, a child born, a baby born in 2001 or, or after would be deployed. I don't think anybody was thinking that 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 son or daughter would be deployed as a young man, young woman that many years later. I mean, I think that's basically what he was talking about. But yes, intellectually, there absolutely was this current within DOD of the long war and within the Bush administration of fighting the long war. But of course, that's one of the many problems with all this is that that was a paradigm for understanding stuff that was quickly thrown aside. Do it right. Well. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's the all, point I was just going to make is yeah. that it's sure it was set up, but it was a failure in communication across multiple administrations because they want Mick war. They want to go through the drive through, get their victory and leave. And instead, we, um, you know, that's what we've been sold and told that, you know, wars are quick and these are anything but the quick wars. And, and, and yeah, just the, the failure in communication, in the American public. And, and, you know, it's, to me, it's one of the two things that big, my biggest problems, failure to understand our, our enemy and failure to communicate and, and engage the American public of the importance of, of staying engaged against an enemy that is fighting a, a multi-generational war. Um, that's why we've lost in Afghanistan and are losing elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, it's one. Of, there are many reasons why this has been a long war, uh, many, many reasons, so I don't want to be reductionist here. But one of the reasons, of course, is that jihadis are principally insurgents. They're experts in guerrilla warfare. They're not, they don't line themselves up like a conventional military that the, the U.S. can quickly wipe out. Um, so that's part of the reason why it's going on. And of course, the the idea underpinning much of President Biden's speech is that the insurgency part of all this doesn't really matter. It's just whatever we can detect as the direct threats to the U.S. homeland and the matters. But of course, what we've documented for years is how there's a continuum between those two things. Yes, it's not it's not true that the, all they do, what they do on the insurgency level um, relates to international terrorism, but it's also not true that there's a, this divide between those two things. That it's completely disconnected. I mean, you know, one of the guys who was taken out in Afghanistan you know, after the Bin Laden raid, for example, was Farouk al-Qahtani. And what was he doing in eastern Afghanistan? He was helping the Taliban's local forces stand up the insurgency and fight the Afghan government and U.S. and NATO forces, while at the same time having a big hand in external operations and planning against the U.S. from Afghan soil, you know. And he was taken out, I think it was in 2016. And now, you know, everybody sort of forgets about that as we listen to President Biden talk about, you know, that the real end date for the war was 2011. You know, this is one of the many examples of why that why that's not true. But there's this idea that the insurgency doesn't really matter for um, the international terrorism. And I think you've correctly said that the insurgencies are the lifeblood for international terrorism because this is how they re replace personnel. This is how they keep it going. And the bottom line is the U.S. had no will or it doesn't have any will to fight the insurgency part of this. Um, and that's really what's driving this, I think. Yeah, we want to fight that. 2%. We want to fight the external operations, as it's called, and not understanding that external operations are driven by the insurgency. It all it all works together. Your example of Farouk al-Qahtani, I mean, we could document dozens and scores of guys like this within al-Qaeda that we've identified and killed, and there's probably scores, if not hundreds more guys like this involved in Afghanistan and Somalia and in Syria and, you know, on and on and on. It's just, it's part of Al-Qaeda's makeup. And it's something that uh, our policymakers and decision makers and um, that refuse to recognize. 
And just to return to the point um, that President Biden made when he cited the other threats from Shabab, the three he mentioned were Shabab, besides ISIS, he mentioned Shabab, AQAP, and Al-Nusra. Now, again, this is, this, is, this is how this strikes me as showing how the American policymakers and elite politicians and everybody really doesn't understand Al-Qaeda even to this day. Because, um, you know, first of all, as I said, there is no Al-Nusra in Syria, right? There's a whole process there that I don't want to re- get into re-examining right now because it leaves things murky. But um, we know that there are Al-Qaeda actors in Syria, you know, I mean, the, the situation with Hayatur al-Sham, which inherited the al-Nusra mantle is complicated. I'm not going to get into all that. But there are other clear pictures like with Harris al-Din, the guardians of the religion organization in Syria, which is led by who, right? Farouk al-Shami, his name he's known as. The Farouk comes from the Farouk training camp in Afghanistan, where prior to 9-11, he trained Al-Qaeda guys to do what? Principally to fight for the Taliban in Afghanistan against the Northern Alliance. And today he is one of the chief leaders of Al-Qaeda in Syria. You go to AQAP, led by who? Khalid Batarfi. What did he do prior to his life in AQAP? Aha, he was a veteran of the Afghan Jihad who went to fight for the Taliban on behalf of Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan prior to 9-11. You have Shabab. There's a lot about the Shabab leaders we don't know, by the way. That's part of. But we know that the Shabab spokesmen and other Shabab leaders have made it very clear that they, like the other aforementioned actors I mentioned, um, that's not very good. Aforementioned actors I mentioned. That's not so great. But anyway, <laughs> the Shabab, the Shabab, it worked. Yeah, whatever. But uh, the, so Shabab, anyway, the spokesman and and other leaders. What has Shabab said? Well, they are loyal to the Al Qaeda Amir Ayman al Zawahiri, and through him to who? Abutul Akhanzada, the so-called Amir of the Faithful, the, the leader of the Taliban, because they recognize his legitimacy as this sort of caliph in waiting, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, you mentioned this stuff. This was brought up by President Biden as if this shows that Afghanistan doesn't matter. But then when you actually get into the details, you realize it actually shows exactly the opposite, that Afghanistan does matter. It's true that the external operations for al-Qaeda is distributed. It's not just in Afghanistan like it was prior to 9-11. I'm going to have a, another point on that in a second. Um, it's true. That's true. Um, but um, in terms of the lifeblood of the international terrorism, this interconnection between the insurgencies and this organization and this network, it's very much a part of the same story and arguably is the most important thing for al-Qaeda right now is to win Afghanistan because that would basically be a huge boon for their movement globally. And I think that so when you get into the details and you see the connectivity of all this, it actually proves the exact opposite of the, of the argument that President Biden is making, with the exception of, yes, it's true, everybody knows the external operations is spread out for al-Qaeda now. That's been documented. But in terms of the connectivity, the continuity of, of the jihad and our jihadist enemies and al-Qaeda in particular, no, all these things are all interlinked. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? just to add one quick point, what happens when the next generation of al-Qaeda leaders are the ones who fought against the, and defeated the United States in Afghanistan. I mean, think of the propaganda boon of that. This is going to be, these guys are going to be like the get the freed Gitmo detainee guys, right? That, you know, they, it's just instant street cred to have been held at, at Guantanamo Bay and let's give them a military command. And it's going to be that same type of thing. It's, it, you know, we may think this doesn't, not Tom and I are, are, so-called betters and policymaking and foreign policy and political leadership may think it doesn't matter. It matters a lot to the jihadists themselves. It's big for recruiting. It's big for their leadership, for them to say that, yep, I was in Afghanistan. I fought the Americans. I helped defeat the Americans. Um, 
you know, where does where did the the last generation of leaders get their cred from? Defeating the Soviets, right? So Osama bin Laden, Zawahiri, et cetera, et cetera. All these guys talk about how they've waged jihad in Afghanistan against the Soviets and against the Northern Alliance and whatnot. That next generation's coming, and it, it, this is something that we're going to have to have to reckon with. Um, I, but again, you know, this is part of the second and third order problems that Tom and I just mentioned early on in the podcast. And there's more of them. And I just don't think the either people don't care or they're not thinking this through. But, um, you know, if, yeah, it, 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 this is just what makes all of this so disappointing. Um, again, we've, we saw this a long time ago. Um, years ago, we, we recognized that we lost in Afghanistan, but it just didn't have to happen like this. You know, um, so I guess I, I think I'll have one more final point and I'll just let it be for this week. Uh, although, cause you know, I, I always find when we talk about Afghanistan and this war, no matter how much I write or I say, there's always more to be written or said, you know, uh, which is unfortunate, but it's true. But, you know, one of the, the curious moments in the speech is that President Biden says that he may not have negotiated this deal with the Taliban, but, um, you know, he's sticking to it because America agreed to it. And there's something to, you know, basically to maintaining, uh, keeping America's word. Well, first of all, this wasn't a treaty that was ratified by the Senate. You know, it was an agreement that was made by the Trump administration with the Taliban. More importantly, the Taliban has done nothing, absolutely zero, to uphold any part of that agreement. I mean, other than, you know, they were happy to get their 5,000 guys back in exchange for a thousand, a five to one uneven swap with the um, Afghan government, which by the way, I still think is it's the same ratio as the Bo Bergdahl deal, which I think they probably were thinking of when they did that. Yeah, it's interesting, you know? Tom. I hadn't thought of that. But yeah, yeah, I mean, I think that's probably know. what they were thinking is the Americans are so weak that we'll give them, we'll give them, for every one we give them back or give their ally back, we'll get five of our guys back. Um, but, you know, the, um, but other than that, you know, that there were these supposed counterterrorism assurances in the agreement. And nobody to this point can say that the Taliban has done anything to break with al-Qaeda or restrain al-Qaeda or prevent al-Qaeda from, from operating in Afghanistan. Some of those provisions said that they were supposed to do that. They're supposed to prevent any anti-American anti terrorist organizations basically from doing that, from operating international terrorist organizations, from operating in Afghanistan. There's, no, there's not a hint of evidence of that, right? There's all sorts of evidence the other way. Um, so why would you – this is what we've argued from the beginning. If you're going to get out of Afghanistan – Okay, we, we can understand why you'd want to do that after all these years. But don't hold this, this servile agreement with the Taliban up as if it's something that has to be um, adhered to by the American side. It, it doesn't. There's nothing in that agreement that is, is worth holding up as something that America should abide by or honor going forward. Quite the opposite. I mean, that agreement is, is an example of American weakness that is really tough to, to fathom. And the Taliban hasn't upheld any part of that. Not only have they not satisfied any of the supposed counterterrorism assurances, the Taliban hasn't done one thing, not one thing in the interest of peace. They've shown everything else that, that this whole supposed peace process is it's quite the opposite. Well, They're going for it. Tom, now, uh, can I disagree with you on that point real quick? Sure. The agreement only said that they had to engage. They didn't say they actually had to do anything. So I will give them credit in the sense well, no, that they've no, done the bare no, minimum. No, no, no. The, agreement, the agreements, well, I'm uh, uh, talking to the Afghan government. Yes, right. But the point the point is, is that they, they, you know, obviously there was no, there's no, my, my point is that there was nothing was specified a, there. Yeah, right. It was so all. bad so, of a deal. Like right. that, that, that was one of our big problems is that there was no benchmark. But, I, but the, thing, the thing is, is that you could say, well, Maybe the Taliban didn't agree do what they were supposed to do by letter of the law, but they've been taking serious steps toward peace is what you could say 
in favor of the agreement. We're saying, no, they didn't do that even. They didn't do anything. The, the point is this was all, this whole thing had a, a, uh, uh, pantina of peace around it, like this whole idea that this was going to be a real, this was going to lead to a peace process. My point is that, that was all charade. It was all nonsense. You can't point to any anything that was really uh, in the interest of peace here. So my point is that both by the letter of the law and the spirit of the law, the Taliban has done nothing, done nothing that, that that shows that this agreement is worth upholding. Furthermore, and this is this is we'll get to this will be my final point. I suggest that people go read Section One F of that agreement. So President Biden says that the U.S. is going to, the U.S. should abide by this agreement. Section 1F says the U.S. isn't going to use military action against Afghanistan or threaten military action, if I'm called correctly from when I last read it, against Afghanistan forevermore. Well, does President Biden believe that? Does President Biden believe the U.S. shouldn't be positioned to defend itself against terrorist threats that are inevitably going to rise out of Afghanistan? No, his own speech recognizes that even though he wanted to say the mission was accomplished and there are no more threats coming around Afghanistan, he says he's going to hold the Taliban to account to its supposed assurances in the deal. Well, that recognizes that there are ongoing threats and problems coming, right? It's sort of all internally contradictory. But that also means that it's Section 1F of that deal, which basically says the U.S. is going to have hands off Afghanistan forevermore. That's another reason why the U.S. policymakers shouldn't abide by this deal. It's a poison pill by the Taliban that, again, our servile diplomacy, America's servile diplomacy with the Taliban granted them. doesn't make any damn sense. You could, you could get out of Afghanistan and say, I want to retreat from Afghanistan, get the military force out, but I'm not going to give away my right to defend Americans going forward. And that's exactly what Zalmay Khalilzad did. Yeah. You know, Tom, I mean, the whole point, and you and I have made this from the beginning, you didn't need this deal to leave Afghanistan the way we're leaving. Um, we'd have had far more respect for the decision if they just discarded this deal for that and many other reasons. I'm going to just bring up quickly two more points that I wanted to make about, about the speech. Um, the first one really doesn't need any uh, discussion. Um, but he, the, I've heard uh, Anthony Blinken, and I believe uh, Biden said it himself, um, that the, we're going to continue to defend women, women and girls' rights in Afghanistan. How? I mean, come on. That's absurd that anyone could even believe that. Um, that's just some ridiculous. Mindless, some talk. mindless talking point. Mindless, mindless talking, talking point. point. Yeah, yeah it doesn't even require us to discuss. It's just stupid. And the second thing is, and this kind of – I was – uh, Tom, we were going back and forth when he said over the horizon um, that that's how they're going to continue to monitor al-Qaeda's threat. Um, that immediately stuck out to me. And and I think we saw this coming. Um, you, saw, you saw this coming. I, when I, I watched the speech live, um, and when he said over the horizon, I immediately remember that you had said that that was what they were going for in Somalia and that that was likely where they were heading with all of this. And so when he used that exact phrasing, I thought, geez, we could just tee up what Bill said about this previously because it's exactly exactly what they were going for. Yeah, I am actually surprised um, that that he used this verbiage because, look, over the horizon weapons, within the military community, right, over the horizon weapons, that's fine. We can launch rockets or missiles or cruise missiles or, you know, from from afar, you know, where you can't, you know, have, not in direct line of sight. That's a good thing, right? You have capabilities. But when you're in counterterrorism uh, posture and you want to conduct over-the-horizon operations, it's not seen as a good thing. It's limiting. The CIA director, William Burns, he even came out and said, look, our, our options are going to be constrained. It's going to, it's, we're going to lose visibility. It's a, there's also issues with lead time, decision-making, and actually conducting a strike. You factor all of these things. 
saying, you know, he may think that that's clever. Whoever wrote this speech might have thought that was clever. But that's a real big tell that they actually don't understand what they're doing. I mean, you know, you, we can go back and, you know, remember the strike against bin Laden. What was it, 97 or 98, where they launched cruise missiles? It was late, late August 1998 in response to the embassy bombings, yeah. Right, right, exactly, yeah. Right, the cruise missiles in the empty tents. Well, people argue, well, that's 23, 24 years ago, Bill, and our technology is far better. And, yeah, you know what, I'm here to tell you, it's these things you can't get away from the issue of time, um, the response time to make the decision, communicate it down the line, and then get that weapon system on target, it adds up. Um, uh, I, I believe it was David Kirkcullen wrote in a piece uh, at uh, FDD on a monograph in, the, uh, in a book uh, where he called it the, uh, the tyranny of time is the way he described it. And it's perfect. It, 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 you just add up the, the minutes and hours of decision making and it gets your your chance of hitting these targets in a timely manner and killing who you intend to kill versus and uh, um versus the also the possibility of civilian casualties and stuff which become an issue you know these things get real difficult and it's not it doesn't work this isn't call of duty um you know video game where you know things happen in the matter of seconds these decisions take time and getting these weapon systems on targets take time or getting individuals into combat. When you look at what happened in Niger when we lost four American soldiers, that was a perfect example. And David Kilcullen lays that out perfectly in, in his chapter um, of the of the tyranny of time. So, you know, we're being sold a, a bad bill of goods at the end of the day on this, this Afghanistan withdrawal. We should have, the agreement should have been discarded. Um, you know, there's a lot of thing, you know, things that we should not have done in this, you know, from, starting from negotiating with the Taliban to begin with. Um, on down on to making the our end withdrawal date being September 11th, 2020, the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Um, but I guess, you know, we shouldn't have expected anything less than a travesty when it came to our withdrawal from Afghanistan, Tom. Yeah, I'm, I'm negotiating with the Taliban. Uh, you know, I'm fine with America talking to anybody as long as you have a realistic view of who you're talking to and what they want. The point is when you go in trying to make concessions and trying to you know, appease, you know, bad actors like this right from the get-go without getting anything in return, which is what negotiating with the Taliban was all about all along, and which is what we said it was about all along. That doesn't make any sense. That style of negotiation, what I've termed servile negotiating or servile diplomacy, does not make any sense. And you just outlined the problems with the over-the-horizon model, and I'll just say this. I'll just reiterate this. The agreement with the Taliban means if you actually do abide by that, America, yep, exactly. then you don't even have to worry about over the horizon strikes, right? Because they're saying you're not going to hit Afghanistan ever again. And uh, that doesn't really make any sense. If you want to believe that America doesn't have any any threats arising from Afghanistan or any terrorists that may have to take a, a, a shot at it in the, in the future, if you really believe that, uh, well, then I got a bridge I want to sell you. So um, anyway, I think we'll leave it there. We think, though. Absolutely, Tom. Perfect stop. We're around an hour so. Uh, thank you to our audience for listening to this week's episode of Generation Jihad. We're going to have some guests lined up in the near future here. We're going to have different topics we're going to cover. Guess what, folks? Afghanistan, you know, as Bill said and I've said many times, uh, we may want to pretend that what happens in Afghanistan stays in Afghanistan. It doesn't happen that way. It doesn't work that way. History shows that this is uh, a lot more integrated into the fabric of the world than people want to believe. They want to believe it's just some meaningless backwater. Uh, that turned out, that's not true. Uh, but in any event, we're going to follow it. We're going to keep following it. There's going to be more stories to tell about this even after the U.S. gets out. 
Um, this is a reminder that please do subscribe to the show. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere else you listen to your podcasts. And we will see you again next week.